You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Rachel McKinnon. Rachel is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the College of Charleston. Her primary research focuses on the relationship between knowledge and action. Her first book was just released entitled The Norms of Assertion, Truth, Lies, and Warrant. She also works on a variety of issues in feminism and feminist philosophy, particularly issues relating to gender and queer identities. Today, we talk about problems that she sees with allies and ally culture and how these connect to gaslighting and epistemic injustice. If you are involved in social movements or consider yourself an ally, you want to stay tuned. Hello, Rachel, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. Good, good, good. How did you get interested in philosophy? I I took an unusual route. Um, it was actually while I was on a work term for chemistry. I found the lab life a little mind-numbing <laughs> and found myself rereading some of the philosophy books that I didn't read when I took intro to philosophy and just decided that the sorts of questions that philosophers were asking were the types of questions questions I was having uh, at that time about science. So philosophy of science is what brought me in originally. And then I found my way into Plato and now epistemology, language, and feminism. So what was it about epistemology, feminism, and all that stuff that led you into that direction to leave philosophy of science? I, I think where my path has taken me has always been the types of questions I wanted to ask. And I always kept returning to the how do you know type question or what types of evidence do you have? And so I found that epistemologists were the ones working on those questions. And more recently, the types of questions I'm interested in are, are what we do with knowledge and what we do with evidence and how we get it from other people. And so issues of epistemic injustice and feminist epistemology is who's asking and answering those types of questions. So that's kind of how I've gotten to where I am. There has been a lot going on within the last couple of years concerning social movements, right? Um, and what has been encouraged, or at least individuals who have had a voice um, who may not have been necessarily undergo these kind of uh, experiences, have called themselves allies, right? So it's been kind of this notion of an ally kind of culture. What is an ally for you? And do you see any positive roles that allies can play in social movements? That, that's a tough question, actually. Uh, I found myself thinking about it this morning, getting ready for the podcast of like, what, what do I think an ally really is? And maybe listeners should imagine me always putting scare quotes around the word ally. I, cause I don't think that they really exist. Um, so typically when we think of allies, we think of people who have some sort of dominant group identity or social location 
who serves to help someone with a disadvantaged identity or social location. So we tend to think of allies like straight people helping out queer people, men helping out women, white people helping people of color, and so on. Um, I, I think that's our typical conception of ally. I think that that gets things a little bit wrong um, because immediately a queer person can't be an ally to another queer person, which seems wrong to me. I think that in-group members can be supportive of other in-group members. Um, I think what allies do is use some amount of social power to help out someone with maybe equal or lesser social power in whatever context. Um, now, what positive role can they have? So that's why I find the tough question. Soon we're going to be talking about where I think we should be moving, which is towards active bystanders, but uh, allies, I think the positive that they can do is recognize that they have some more social power and then use that social power. So, for example, uh, when I, I'm teaching, I'm a white woman, and I teach a lot of issues of critical race theory, uh, race and racism in the classroom. And part of the reason I can do so much of that is that I won't receive the same amount of punishment or pushback from students or administrators. So in a sense, I can use my white privilege to affect good. And I think that that's the good thing that allies can do is to recognize that they have some more power and then to use it. You, you say in your work that allies can engage in what you call gaslighting, right? What is gaslighting? <laughs> and what are some examples in which allies do engage in this kind of behavior? So gaslighting traces back to uh, a 1938 play and then a 1944 movie called Gaslight, where the central plot is one of a man engaging in what we might call psychological warfare on his wife. He's basically trying to convince her that she's not perceiving the world properly and to drive her crazy, and he succeeds. Now, that form of psychological warfare isn't typically what we're using for gaslighting these days. More typically, we mean something as a form of epistemic injustice where a few things are happening. One is that the gaslighter downplays the seriousness of an injustice that someone claims to have suffered. It also tends to directly attack the reliability of the affected person's perceptions of the events or their memory of the events. So, for example, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, Dave just sexually harassed me, he groped me at the bar... Well, someone might gaslight by saying, well, maybe you came on to him or you're just overreacting. It's not that serious. He, you know, just had a couple drinks. Besides, he's married. He wouldn't do that sort of thing. Yeah. So these are all sorts of ways that we might gaslight someone's claim that something bad happened to them. Okay. Are, are there any other sins, if we can call them that, that allies partic can participate in? So some of my work lately in feminist epistemology has to do with standpoint theory. So the idea that having a certain social identity or location produces certain epistemic effects. One of them, I think, is that if you have a certain identity and you're sort of struggling against systems of oppression based on that identity, you're better epistemically situated to understand how that oppression works yeah. and, I suspect, know how to react to it. 
So one of the sins that allies commit is not recognizing that they're lacking that social locatedness means that they're at an epistemic disadvantage. And so what I see allies do a lot is if someone claims that some injustice happened to them, they'll use their own background information as equal epistemic weight to the claim of an injustice. Mm -hmm. So they'll say things like, well, you know, maybe he's done this to you before, but I've never seen him do it. So somehow they're putting their own experiences on equal epistemic footing to the person who's claiming an injustice. And I think that that's, that's not right. We need to be putting more trust into the uh, testimony and assertions of the disadvantaged person. Another thing that allies do, and this is what irks me the most and prompted <laughs> me to write a whole paper on it, is that they use their allyship as an identity and they use that identity as a protection from criticism. So if an ally screws up, and they inevitably will, then if you try to criticize them and say, look, you, you're screwing up, they'll say, yeah, but I'm an ally. Like, cut me some slack. Or you're just going to push me away. Why should I even bother if I can't get it right? right? And we saw this in you know, lots of cases. A, a fairly famous one was Piers Morgan's response um, to Janet Mock. Right. So when she was being interviewed by Piers Morgan, her uh, the description of her was that she was born a man and she tweeted rejecting that narrative, rightly so. And then Piers attacked her, right, saying that, you know, this is nonsense. I won't stand for this. I demand an apology from Janet, him never apologizing. So they, they use that identity, like, but I su I'm a supporter, right? So you shouldn't criticize me, because if you criticize me, then I'll stop supporting you. And we sort of call this type of behavior cookie-seeking behavior. So allies tend to want recognition for the good that they've done. Mm -hmm. And often what I find is that allies want positive recognition for not doing bad, hmm. Right? Oh, well, give me some credit. At least I didn't do this worst thing to you. Yeah. Right? So I, I see a lot of bad behavior from allies. So how can we move from this, this ally culture that you're describing, right? And, and what I'm thinking about, there's a, there's a clip in a Malcolm X movie, Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie. And um, a white woman walks up to, to Malcolm X, played by Denzel Washington, but walks up to Malcolm X um, at a campus. And she says, you know, I'm dedicated, you know, I understand you all struggle. What can a white woman do, right? And his response to her was nothing. And then he walks away, right? So there may be some people that may be listening that says, well, you know, if, if these are the sins that I commit as an ally, what can I do? Is it nothing or do you have an, uh, another alternative? I think it's so messy. <laughs> <laughs> So messy. I don't have a soundbite for what can be done. I think, I think part of how we have to approach this is recognizing that epistemic disadvantage of not having the identity, of not living in it every day. So I think one consequence of recognizing that is that we have to trust more the people who do have the identity who are telling us stuff. Okay. The worry I have, though, is also that... I I find that allies think it should be easy to do it well. Um, I find that they, they want to read a couple and feel like they know what's going on when they don't. So coming to understand how to properly engage 
an anti-racist project or an anti-transphobic project or whatever is going to be a lifelong project and it's going to be a lot of work. And I think it's more work when you don't have the identity. It's a lot of work even if you do have the identity. Mm-hmm. It's even more if you don't. And so, like, I continually find people just thinking it should be easy. And so when you try to show them, no, you need to work harder, then they, they react negatively, right? Like, well, give me some credit, right? Yeah. It's like cookie-seeking yeah. pops right up. So I, I think trusting more the claims of the disaffected people, not gaslighting them when they tell you that you're causing harm or someone has harmed them, not telling people to, like, get over it, you're overreacting, um, and then expecting to do a lot more of their own research and struggling with things on their own time, not expecting the disadvantaged person to always be doing the educating, um, respecting that maybe we get burnt out sometimes from always fighting these battles. Um, one of the the really sticky situations is I find allies are often afraid of making a mistake, and that leads to complete inaction. So they know they probably should do something. They don't want to make a mistake because if they do, then they're probably going to get crap from the, the disadvantaged person too. And what I tell people is just do something, right? Be prepared for criticism, but just do something. Something is generally better than nothing. And at least in my own case, I know that a lot of people have refrained from saying something even to just be minimally supportive because they think I can fight my own battles, which is for the most part true, but what that results in is no one ever fights my own battles for me, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I never see people stepping up for the most part because they're like, well, she's capable of it. I don't need to do anything. Whereas I'm sitting here being like, no, I'm only fighting my own battle because no one will fight for me. Yeah. Right? So I find that this fear of doing something and fear of doing something wrong is getting in the way of actually doing anything. And is this what you describe as an active bystander? An active bystander would do these things? Yeah. So part of my work is saying that we have to get rid of allies and ally culture and an uneasy replacement is the active bystander. So one of the benefits of moving to an active bystander model is that I think it removes some of the identity claims, right? You can't claim to be an active bystander if you're not actually actively doing anything. Okay. Whereas I found a lot of people claim an ally identity without ever having done anything Mm -hmm. to earn it. So... An active bystander just does stuff, right? So you can't claim that, well, I'm, I'm an active bystander. You should give me some credit if you didn't do anything in the context. So, yeah, active bystanders are people who actually engage, who actually participate in helping in some way, whether it makes it worse or makes it better. They're at least doing something. They're stepping in. They're saying, that's not cool. They're saying if someone's already fighting their own battle, they're chiming in in support of it. And that's something I see like lacking almost in its entirety. People stepping in to be like, I agree with this person. What I see instead is a lot of back channel, people sending an email or a message saying, yeah, I totally agree with you, but they're not doing it publicly. Yeah. And active bystanders have to do it publicly. Otherwise, it's not being an active bystander. 
So I, I want to let, let's let's put this into kind of a, a real life context, right? So um, we're Facebook friends, and one of the things about Facebook is uh, it gives you an opportunity at least to go into the minds of some of the people that we follow, right? And you see people post certain articles, particularly events that's relate to marginalized people, and then you have, have an opportunity to see them kind of commentate on those things. So l- let me give a specific case. So when Caitlyn Jenner's Vanity Fair cover came out, what I saw was a lot of cis, cis folks kind of supporting her. And ways in which they did that was they commented on her her beauty. And for yeah. them, that was, you know, hey, we're, we're supporting her, gung-ho, this is fabulous, this is wonderful. And those folks would consider themselves allies, right, to, 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 to the trans movement. So I want to kind of go and pick your brain for a, a little bit. Tell me some of the issues that you found or had with people in their response to Caitlyn Jenner that they perceived was just being an ally. And tell me how they can transform that kind of behavior into being active by bystander, particularly as it relates to the trans movement. So for the, for the most part, uh, you might have noticed I didn't post anything yeah. about the Jenner case um, for months because I just didn't want to wade into it. Also, in the lead up to the Vanity Fair cover, there was a lot of lack of information, misinformation, just it was a mess and I didn't want to touch it. Mm-hmm. Um so this is this is scare quotes here for allies. Okay. What I see from a lot of allies is they want to do token displays of support. And something like cheering on a Vanity Fair cover for a wealthy Republican white woman fits the bill for most allies. Hmm. They want to do something that's fairly safe for them. They don't want to take on personal or cultural risk. So often allies, again, scare quotes, don't want to alienate their current set of friends. Whereas people in disadvantaged groups are often having to distance themselves from friendships all the time because of stuff going bad. Whereas allies don't want to take that risk. And so they tend to take very, very safe displays of token support. And I felt like a lot of the the comments supporting Caitlin's cover were of that sort. And that's sort of the supportive comments. And then the nonsense happened because immediately after the, the displays of support, there were the critiques of beauty. Yeah. And this is where things started going off the rails. And this is where I kind of started had to weigh in because it was so infuriating. So what happened was... And this comes from a lot of feminists, frankly. There would be critiques of beauty in saying that she's perpetuating these binaristic, rigid gender beauty norms. And that, you know, we shouldn't be praising her for this. And we should be critiquing her for this. Well, that's well and good. I mean, that's true. But why is it that this critique only happens when a trans person gets attention? Hmm. Right? Why now? Why this Vanity Fair cover when every other month the same thing happens when some other cis woman is on the Vanity Fair cover doing the exact same things? And the critiques never happen. Yeah. Right? So that was one problem. So a, a lack of awareness of why are they doing it now? Why are they picking a trans person as somehow having more responsibility for not perpetuating gender norms than the person voicing the concern themselves. Mm-hmm. 
the other thing that happened was we have to recognize that you know i i have some work on the nature of privilege and jenner is almost as privileged as it gets um except that she's trans so she's white wealthy republican well connected right she's quite secure quite safe the sorts of social ills that befit most or befall most trans people just aren't going to be an issue for her for the most part the other thing is that she partly because of all this privilege just she's completely ignorant for the most part on gender theory and trans issues period so one of the worries is that she's making certain claims and then, you know, cis folk are treating her as a mouthpiece for the trans community. So if she says something that seems wrong to them, they think that she's speaking for the rest of us when she's not, right? Um, another issue with critiquing her is cis folk just need to sit down and shut up because we'll do it ourselves. Okay. Right? So there were tons of critiques of what was going on by trans people. Cis folk don't need to do it. And they need to recognize that they're doing it has a different set of social weights than trans people ourselves doing it. Right. So if you want to have critiques, well, signal boost what we're also writing. And I don't see enough of that. And then finally, the shitstorm happened again when the Dolezal case came yeah. out and the constant comparisons between a gender transition and the possibility of transitioning race yeah. and the parallels which I've argued in this aren't there um, and one comment that I kept seeing pop up over and over again and then I finally had to comment on Facebook was some people were saying, you know, I'm I'm supporting uh, Caitlin because at least she's out in the open and she's honest. Whereas, you know, I don't support Rachel because of the deception and the dishonesty. Yeah. And so I had to comment and saying, wait, so what you're really saying is that trans people should be out. And if they're not out, then they're deceiving, which is one of the biggest problematic tropes of trans people there is. Moreover, the statistics on being out and trans are that you are far more likely to be assaulted, to be murdered, to be fired, to be denied work, to be denied housing, all sorts of horrible things. So these cis allies, scare quotes, are essentially saying that I'm only okay with you if you do the sorts of things that create harm for you. With complete unawareness of what they're saying. And so it's just... A nightmare few weeks for being an activist and and one of your your calls is <laughs> that they can stop committing these sins um do as you suggest um and instead of of i guess contributing to this ally culture it's best if they serve as an active bystander as an active bystander they would not commit the sins in which you're describing exactly exactly and i think part of the problem with ally culture is that it incentivizes these token displays right you have to show there's this feeling that you need to display to prove that you're an ally and the way that people think that you do that is by these shows of support which because they're coming from such a disadvantaged epistemic position tends to cause more harm 
And so I, I honestly think a good case could be made that allies and ally culture create, on balance, more harm than good. So you are an athlete. I'm an athlete. If there could only be one sport and you were, as Bush says, the decider, what would be the sport and why? I think that's the most fair possible <laughs> question you can ask me. Here, let me alienate everyone listening. So my, my heart goes out to badminton, but that's not a realistic answer. Um, and I worry that my answer is probably colored by um, what, I, what I participate in now. And I would say cycling would be the one yeah. sport. So I, I think a reason for that is it's fairly low impact, unless you crash or get hit by a car. Um, and it doubles for commuting, so travel. So uh, part of what I do in my training every week is I recover by commuting. So not only am I engaging in the sport and going out for training rides, but it's also just a way for me to get around. So I'm going to say cycling. Okay. All right. Who is on your top three lists of badass philosophers? Okay. So for me, I think that's a pretty easy answer. Okay. So uh, number one for me is Christy Dotson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also really excited that she'll be down here in Charleston in October to give a talk. Nice. Uh, second is George Yancey. Mm-hmm. And third is Jose Medina. What do they have in common for you? So I I think they're doing the most to change not just how we think about social issues and uh, they're doing, so I think they're doing both theoretical and practical philosophy and that is what I love most. I like doing philosophy that I hope makes a difference in the world and I think that they're doing that. Also, they're challenging the long-standing crappy norms and practices of philosophy itself and i think that they're they're all making a difference you're stuck on an island for a month what would you rather have with you a dog a cat your bike or another human being a dog (laughs) why (laughs) dogs don't annoy me (laughs) um and I, I would appreciate the companionship of another person mm-hmm. uh, over having something like a bike. So a dog, and it would be my dog, Dennett. All right, last question. If you could recommend one book, particularly about feminism, what would that book be and why? Okay, so if it's a more introductory book, I would go with Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. It's a collection of essays. Uh, I think it's a nice challenge. It, so I think it'll introduce people to concepts, but also challenge the way that feminism is being done right now. Um, but honestly, my answer would be don't go looking for a book. I think the very best work being done right now is on blogs. Yeah. So the three blogs I would recommend are the Crunk Feminist Collective, mm-hmm. Black Girl Dangerous, and Feministing. Nice. I'm so glad that you included blogs. Right. I think 
I think social media, I, I forgot where I read this at. I think social media, the Internet is changing the way in which certain voices or most definitely is changing the ways in which most voices who have been marginalized and that marginalization, not just being a silencing in general, but a silencing in the publishing world has had the opportunity to get their 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 voices heard. Um, and I think we ought to take that serious. I mean, you do work in epistemology. We ought to take blogs serious as reproducing knowledge um, and p- contributing to the academic um, sphere. Um, but I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. So one of the reasons that I, I would push people away from books, even though I just wrote one, uh, <laughs> is, is that the publishing business is such that it disincentivizes risk-taking and pushing back against systems of oppression. It's very hard to do that and get a book published, yeah. whereas it's very easy to do that on a blog or social media. And I say this as someone who has a blog too, and I use it for different purposes. I use it for taking those risks that I can't do in normal academic publishing. Hmm. Rachel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.